O God in heaven, there is none like You. You are the Creator of heaven and earth, the sovereign ruler of history, the One who does as He pleases with the kingdoms of men. Yet in all Your greatness and majesty, You come to dwell with those who are humble and lowly in heart. We exalt You that we might abase ourselves. We abase ourselves that You might exalt us. Speak to us today, Lord, through Your Word. Speak into our hearts that light might overcome darkness. Feed us at Your table. Feed us that our souls might be nourished on the flesh of Christ Your Son and that we might truly partake of the life-giving manna that has come down from heaven. O Lord, give us Your gifts and Your grace as we give You all praise and honor. Give us glory as we ascribe all glory to You. O Father, with Your Son and the Holy Spirit, the eternal triune God. Amen. I want to continue reading from Isaiah 40. Uh, We have read the first 26 verses of this chapter. I'll pick up in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we know that the flower fades and the grass withers, but Your Word, the Word of the Lord, stands forever. Make Your Word to stand firm in our hearts today. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to our final installment in a series of sermons I've been preaching on Isaiah chapter 40. We began this back in Advent season, Uh, it ran through Christmas, and now we're wrapping up in the season of Epiphany. And really that works pretty well. This passage has stretched across three seasons of the church calendar for us. It works pretty well. In Isaiah 40, uh, the Lord sends a messenger before him to prepare his way because the Lord has promised to come to his people who are in deep distress. That's really what Advent is all about. God's promise to come to his people. God promises to redeem his people in the form of a new exodus, covering their sins with a sacrifice he provides and liberating them from bondage. That's what Christmas is all about. And we've seen that here in this passage. This is what Jesus came for, to fulfill Isaiah 40. And then, of course, in this passage, we see how God promises to manifest His glory and His wisdom and His salvation, not just to Israel, but to all flesh, to all nations. That's really what epiphany is all about. The appearance of God in the world is not just for Israel. The light shines on all the nations. What I want us to do this morning as we wrap this up is look at this large middle section. We've looked at the beginning and the end. Today we're going to look at the middle. uh, Verses 12 to 26. And really what you have in these verses is a description of God. See, the most important thing for Israel to know in the midst of her trials is God. 
Israel needs to know the greatness and the uniqueness of God. Now, why is that? You know, we, we have a saying, God helps those who help themselves. Uh, that's not in the Bible. What this passage actually says is God helps those who wait for Him. Those who wait for God find the help they need. And in waiting on God, the only way we can really wait on God is if we know God. See, it is the depth of our knowledge of God that makes all the difference. Why is that? Really, it's, it's, it's simple. See, what Isaiah has done in his prophetic book, he has foretold judgment that is going to come upon Israel. Judgment will fall upon the people of God. And the first 39 chapters of this prophecy details the reasons and the results of that judgment. Israel has committed idolatry, and so the people will be exiled. They will be enslaved. But in chapter 40, Isaiah looks even further ahead into Israel's future. He looks ahead to Israel's restoration. He pivots from a message of judgment to a message of comfort and hope. Yes, Israel will die, but Israel will be resurrected. Yes, Israel will be exiled away from her land and away from the presence of the Lord. But there will be a new exodus. She'll be brought back home. She'll be brought back to God's presence and to her land. But how can Israel know that God will do these things? How can Israel know that God can and will fulfill these promises? After all, if you look at Israel in uh, the days this is describing, the things that God had promised to Israel and what Israel is actually experiencing do not match up. God had promised comfort and change. For Israel. God had promised forgiveness and restoration. God had promised life and glory. But what do the people have? What are they experiencing? They're in slavery. They're in exile. Is God just like a human politician who makes all these promises He can't keep? What do you do with this gap between what God has promised and what they were experiencing? How could they know how could they know God would deliver? How could they know God would keep His Word? How could they know God would come through? And you know, really, we ask the same questions in our lives. And we need the same teaching Isaiah gave to Israel. The way to know God will come through is to know God. It's really that simple. The way to get comfort in times of struggle and darkness and trial is knowing God. It's to know God. In knowing God, there is hope. This was true for the Israelites. It's true for us. When we find ourselves in a hard place in life, when we're going through some kind of trial, a, a dark night of the soul, if you will, we wonder, is God there? Does God care? Does God hear? Does God love? And Isaiah shows us here, the answer to all our fears and doubts are found in God Himself. It seems God's the problem. God's not acting. God's not doing what He said He would do. He's not doing what we need Him to do and what we want Him to do. But Isaiah shows us God is also the solution. But to get the comfort God offers, we have to know God Himself. Not just knowing theology, though that is important, but it's knowing God Himself. Really, there's nothing more practical than knowing God 
deeply. And that's what Isaiah is doing in this passage. He's drawing Israel, and he's also drawing us into a deeper knowledge of the incomparable God, the God who is like none other. You could say, really here, Isaiah is doing theological apologetics. To, to give an apology in this sense is to make a defense. And that's what Isaiah is doing here. He is defending the truth of God and the trustworthiness of God by pointing to God Himself. I think Isaiah would tell us God is His own best witness. God is His own best defense. And so Isaiah shows us here who God is, primarily by showing us God's works. In fact, what Isaiah does here, Isaiah takes us on a tour to show us who God is. A tour of God's great works. There's some places in Scripture that take us on a historical tour to show us what God has done throughout the ages. This is a tour of the creation. And this tour is really like a roller coaster. Isaiah takes us up to the heavens to see the stars God made. And then he takes us down to the earth to see the foundations that God laid for the world, to see the mountains and the waters. And so let's take Isaiah's tour with him. Let's first go up. Let's go up to the heavens with Isaiah and tour God's works there. Verse 26, Isaiah says, God spread out the stars and put each star in its place and calls each one by name. Isaiah says God has numbered and named the stars and not one is missing. And I love this. This this is so impressive. And the more we learn about the universe, the more impressive it becomes. There's really no conflict between Scripture read rightly and science done rightly. Isaiah here is describing God's work of creation. Isaiah describes the stars as if they are the Lord's host, the Lord's army, with each one marching in accord with His orders. I want you to think about this. As Isaiah takes us on this tour up into the heavens, what is he showing us? Supposedly, our Milky Way, our galaxy, is over 104,000 light years across. And it contains upwards of 400 billion stars. 104,000 light years across, 400 billion stars. And then get this, that's just our galaxy. There are hundreds of billions of galaxies, many of which are far larger than the Milky Way. So you get all that space and all those stars. And Isaiah says, it all belongs to God. All of it points to Him as the Maker. Verse 22 says that God has spread out the heavens like a curtain, as if God was forming the universe into a tent, into a home for Himself, a house in which He will dwell. And yet we see elsewhere in Scripture, not even the heavens can contain God. Uh, you know, the, the astronaut John Glenn passed away not too long ago, uh, passed away in early December. And uh, so, of course, several articles came out on his life. He lived a very impressive life. Was a uh, seemed to be a very faithful Christian man. Uh, and I've always been fascinated by the space race between the U.S. and the USSR in the 1950s and 1960s. And so, John Glenn, of course, was uh, was a real hero uh, in that era. He was the first American to orbit the Earth, uh, and, and and a great astronaut. And then later, of course, became a politician. But uh, as I was reading up on John Glenn, I came across a couple of really interesting quotations. One, of course, was kind of funny. 
uh, he was asked what he was thinking about as he was hurtling in a rocket through space. And he said, as I hurtle through space, he said, one thought kept crossing my mind. Every part of this rocket was built by the lowest bidder. I guess while you're flying through space, that's something you do consider. I'd want to consider that before I get on the rocket. But, uh, but he also said this. He said, to look out at this kind of creation here. This is a man who's been to space, so he knows what he's talking about. To look out at this kind of creation here and not believe in God seems impossible. And Isaiah says the same thing. You want proof of God's power and wisdom. Just look up. Look up. You want proof of God's power. Just look at the stars and the sky above you. The more we learn about our universe, the more impossible it becomes to say that we're just here by chance. That somehow our universe and our galaxy and our planet just got lucky and somehow we beat all the odds so that life could exist here. The more we learn about the universe, the more we learn about life, the more impossible we see that to be the case. How that simply can't be. No, everything in the world around us shows evidence of having been designed and indeed finely tuned carefully calibrated. You change almost any of thousands of different parameters in the physical world and life as we know it becomes impossible. In other words, blind forces in nature could never bring about what we see. Look, I know around Christmas time, you know, I see this every year, articles come out mocking Christians for, you know, their backwards faith, how unscientific they are. And you know, those Christians, they even believe in a virgin birth. The virgin birth of Christ. See how dumb Christians are? They don't even know where babies come from. Well, the reality is secularists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. <laughs> Which is a problem in itself. See, I would say without God at the center of your worldview, without understanding God as Creator, you can't account for how the world came to be. You can't account for life. You can't account for how something came from nothing, how life came from non-life, how personality came from the impersonal, how morality came from the amoral, how purpose came from the per from what was purposeless, how meaning came from what was meaningless. That's just too many jumps to make. I would say secularism is just a bridge too far. There's no way to make each of those leap. Look up at the starry night sky the seemingly endless expanse of stars, the solar systems, the galaxies, and ask. Where did it all come from? Why is it here? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there such intricate design and beauty? Why is there life and, 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 and purpose? Why is there morality and meaning in our world? The divine fingerprints are everywhere. And of course, Isaiah's point in showing us all of this is certainly, yes, to show us the greatness of God, but it's really to drive home this point. Isaiah wants us to see the same God who made all of that, the same God who made you, now comes to you clothed in grace and mercy to comfort you. That's how this chapter begins. Comfort, comfort my people. He comes to comfort you and to forgive you. See, God's not merely some higher power. He's not a force, an unnameable force. No, He is the incomparable God. He is the faithful God, the loving God, the caring Creator. 
But see, Isaiah doesn't just take us on a tour up to the heavens. He also takes us down to look at the wonders of earth on this roller coaster ride. And this planet that we live on also shows us God's power and wisdom. In verse 12, we see God is so great that He can cup up all the waters of the world in the palm of His hand. That's the picture Isaiah draws for us there. Now, that's impressive. 71% of the earth is covered with water. There are 326 million trillion gallons of water on the earth. And Isaiah says God can reach down and scoop it all up in the palm of His hand if He were to choose to do so. Further, Isaiah goes on. Uh, he says God can put all the mountains in His scale. All the mountains throughout the world. It's as if God can just pick them up the way we would pick up tiny little pebbles and drop them down in a scale or in a balance to weigh them. Isaiah says that's what God does with all the mountains. Isaiah goes on, he says, the nation, so here now we're not just talking about the, geograph the, 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 the geographic features of the earth, we're talking about the people who inhabit the earth. He says the nations are like a drop in the bucket to God in verse 15. Verse 17, he says the nations are nothing before Him. Down in verse 22, he says the inhabitants of the earth. So think here, not just of people, but now people organized into nations and kingdoms and empires. He says the nations of the earth are like grasshoppers before God. There are no superpower nations before God. How blasphemous is that? The nation gets really powerful. Like we talk about our own nation as a superpower. How blasphemous is that? There are no superpowers before God. There are no political heavyweights before God. I find it so interesting that the kingdoms of the earth are called grasshoppers here. That's an interesting description because centuries earlier when the Israelites were first going to enter into the promised land, they had to go in and conquer the land. And uh, they became afraid. And they wouldn't do it. And they ended up having to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They would not enter into the land because there were giants in the land. And the Israelites said, they are so big and we are so small, it's like we're grasshoppers before them. And they're just going to be able to crush us, just stomp on us the way we might stomp on a grasshopper. That's how big they are compared to us. They're giants. Well, now Isaiah says, God is so immense and the nation's so small before Him. They're like grasshoppers. Which means, yes, God can crush the nations anytime He pleases. He holds the nations in His hand. He holds all the nations of the world in His hand and He does with them as He pleases. It is a small world after all to God. Indeed, it is a small universe to God. A small cosmos. In fact, verse 12 actually does this. It tells us the measure of the universe in comparison to God. And of course, all of this is poetic language. But this is what Isaiah says in verse 12. He, he says, God measures heaven and earth with a span. You know what a span is? It's the length from the end of your pinky to the end of your thumb. And Isaiah says the whole cosmos with all its millions or billions of galaxies, that's what it's like to God. He is the creator and sustainer and ruler of the cosmos. But it's not just here that God is so much greater than His creation. I mean, that's certainly part of Isaiah's message here. Isaiah also wants us to see the artistry and wisdom with which God has created. When Isaiah describes God's work of creation, he uses the language of an artist. He uses the language of a craftsman. 
You know, the way a craftsman might create, say, a piece of furniture, how he might create something beautiful with skill and mastery. That's how Isaiah is describing God's work of creation. He uses words and phrases like measured and marked out and weighed and hollow and breadth and basket and scales. All the kinds of terms that would be that would be used by a master craftsman or by an artist to describe the way they make their work. That's the kind of language Isaiah uses when talking about how God made the world. God's work in creation is skillful. It's precise. Everything has been weighed and measured and marked out. Like an expert carpenter, an expert craftsman, the world shows us the craftsmanship and beauty of God. God has built a world that is a work of art. But words that describe artistry and craftsmanship are still not really enough to describe God's work of creation. After using all of those artistic terms, those terms drawn from the work of the the craftsman or the carpenter to describe God's work of creation, Isaiah turns to describe the wisdom with which God has made the world. And here he uses terms uh, that describe God as counselor terms like wisdom and understanding and instruction and enlightenment and knowledge and justice. God possesses all wisdom and knowledge so no one can be His counselor or His teacher. God never needs to learn anything. He already knows everything. This is the God Isaiah is describing. Indeed, we can say any wisdom we have or any understanding we see in the world around us comes from God as His gift. And that brings us back to the point. The same power and wisdom that built the world in the beginning can rebuild the people of Israel. That's what Isaiah wants them to see. And so the Creator is the Comforter and He can comfort us precisely because He is the Creator. He is a comfort to us because He creates and He recreates. If God was wise enough to make the world everything we see all around us. If God possesses wisdom to create everything we see all around us, then He is wise enough to solve whatever problems we might face. If God is powerful enough to create the world, to create everything we see around us, to sustain this world, then certainly God is powerful enough to rescue us and redeem this world. That's Isaiah's point. That's Isaiah's message. Indeed, there's more. Isaiah tells us that because of God's greatness, our worship of Him can never be adequate. Verse 16, he says, even Lebanon, you have to understand, the same way we think of the redwoods out in California, that's how they thought of Lebanon. It had these great cedar trees. And Isaiah says, even Lebanon with its great and famous forests could not provide enough wood to burn all the sacrifices that would be needed to honor this God. But of course, then he actually goes on and says, beasts are not going to be sufficient offerings anyway. That's not the kind of sacrifice God ultimately desires. In fact, if you keep reading in Isaiah, you find the kind of sacrifice God desires. You come to Isaiah chapter 53, the song of the suffering servant. There you find the one and only sacrifice that will be sufficient and effective before God. And so Isaiah ask the question. He says, to whom will you liken this God? Who are you going to compare God to? There is nothing and no one else like this God. He is utterly unique. 
and utterly incomparable. Indeed, that's why Isaiah keeps asking all these questions. Who will you compare God to? Who can be God's counselor? Who knows justice the way God does? Who has power and wisdom like God does? Isaiah hammers them with question after question. This is the picture of God Isaiah is painting for us with his poetic description. God has the skill of an artist and the wisdom of a, of a counselor. He has the power to create and the power to recreate. He's the sovereign Lord over heaven and earth. He sustains His creation, moving all that moves, giving life to all that has life, teaching every creature whatever wisdom and knowledge it possesses. He is Lord over history, Lord over the nations. He is distinct from His creation and yet fills it, ruling over it all. From the largest and, and, and furthest flung galaxy down to the smallest subatomic particle. And God is not an impersonal force. No, He is the active, good, and loving God who cares for His creation and who comforts His people. He is the God who speaks His truth and shows His truth to man in His Word and in His Word. He is a God of word and deed. A God who speaks and acts. And Isaiah says to Israel, and he says to us, this is how you can know God is going to come through. God's promises to His people are sure. God's purposes for the creation cannot fail. God did not make the world just to let evil have it. God did not make the world just to scrap it in the end. No, God made this world. God's going to redeem it. God is forgiving the sins of His people. He's going to cover them with a sacrifice He provides. That's Isaiah's message in the opening verses. And so the people of Israel, and we today can know, God's purposes are sure. The God who created the universe in exquisite beauty and wisdom is not going to lose His creation. The God who called His people to be the crown of His creation, to be His covenant family, they're not going to be lost either. God leaves nothing to chance. Nothing is outside of His control. This is not the kind of God you doubt. You may not understand this God. You may not be able to fathom His purposes. You can't demand answers from this kind of God. But you certainly can trust Him. You can trust His power and His goodness and His wisdom. He is both willing and able to save. Isaiah has described for us the God who is, the God who is there, the God who speaks and the God who acts, the God of the covenant, the God of creation, the God of comfort, the God of providence and the God of power, the God of salvation and the God of judgment. And Isaiah has shown us this God is in a league of His own. He has no rivals. He's in His own category. He's one of a kind. Isaiah shows us the greatness of God. So we will know this is a God we can rely on. Our hopes and dreams are safe in Him. He will keep His word. To borrow an expression we sometimes use wrongly in our culture, God is too big to fail. He's too big to fail. But here's what's really shocking. We can fully perceive something that Isaiah could only see in faint shadow. Isaiah could only glimpse a shadowy outline of what was to come. How God would fulfill His promises. We can see it in full, in living color, in 3D. This is what's really shocking. 
God's bigness, as Isaiah has described it, makes the way that God has kept His Word all the more amazing. How has God kept His Word? How has God fulfilled all the promises He made to ancient Israel? Promises that ultimately overspilled Israel's boundaries and flowed out to all the nations. How has God fulfilled His promises? This big God has kept His Word. How? By becoming small. The big God keeps His promises by becoming small. This God has come to us in Jesus. The One who holds the world in His hand was born a baby and placed in the hands of His mother, Mary. The transcendent God who rules time and space, the eternal God, entered our history and our world in the fullness of time. The eternal God had a birthday. How can that be? The omnipotent One wrapped in unapproachable light had to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. The One who spread out the heavens came to earth as a baby. The God who spoke the world into existence babbled in baby talk and had to be taught by His parents how to speak. The Creator became a creature in order to bring us And ultimately, we know what happened after He entered this world. The faithful one was betrayed. The just one was treated with injustice. The one who is life was put to death. The righteous one suffered in the place of the unrighteous to make us righteous with His Father. Isaiah paints this picture of a big God. But you know, God didn't look too big when Israel was taken off into exile. And when the temple was destroyed, God didn't look very big when Jesus was born as a baby in a lowly manger. God did not look that big when Jesus was hanging on a cross. But each time, this is because this big God Isaiah describes, this big God described by Isaiah in all His greatness and His glory was stooping and becoming small in order to save us. The big God becomes small to rescue us. This is the Gospel. This God is the Gospel. This is the good news that the big God has become small for us. Our comfort and our hope and our salvation are found in God Himself. The God who has come to us in Jesus Christ. The big God who became small for us and for our salvation. And so whenever you feel the way Israel felt, whenever you feel like God has forgotten you, when you're buried in deep darkness, when you find yourself in a bind, in a trial, surrounded by thick darkness, God seems so far away. It seems your whole world is falling apart. When you're like Israel, waiting for God to show up, waiting for God to do something, remind yourself, of who God is. Remind yourself of how big God is and how small God became. Remind yourself of what God has already done for you in Jesus Christ. Your hope, your salvation is in Him. Wait on God with patience. We're not like people. I like how N.T. Wright describes it. N.T. Wright says, we're not like people who are in an utterly dark room hoping somebody will come in with a lighted candle. No, we wait like people 
in the early morning, who can see the first glimmers of the sun rising above the horizon, and who know that the full brightness of the sun is sure to come. The glory of God shines upon us in Jesus Christ. Let us give thanks together. Father, we do thank You. You, the big God, the immense God, the God whom all the universes cannot contain, the God who is the Creator of heaven and earth, the God who can cup all the waters of the world in the palm of His hand, the God who puts each star in place, numbering and naming them. You, the great God, the Creator and Ruler of all, You became small in Your Son for us to save us. You not only became small, but You suffered and died for us in human flesh to rescue us that we might be redeemed, that Your whole creation might be redeemed. So You don't have to scrap Your creation and throw it in the dustbin. No, Your whole creation is being redeemed through Christ Jesus, Your Son and our Savior. This is our hope. Even in dark times, Lord, help us to remember who You are and all You've done for us in Your Son. This we pray in His name. Amen.